Okay, we're in 2 Corinthians 8 and, and uh, verse 2 where it says that in a great ordeal of affliction there, and I was talking about the churches of Macedonia, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. But in ver- verse 1 talked about grace, and I pointed out last week, if you weren't here, that the word grace is repeated many times, sometimes not translated grace. For example, in verse 4 it says urging for the favor. The word favor in the Greek is charis, grace. Okay? So uh, there is grace in giving. And God works a work of grace first. Notice verse 8, verse 1, as we looked last week, the grace of God has been giving, given. So God gives grace. And the result of God giving grace is verse 2. That an ordeal of, of affliction, their abundance of joy and deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Now, the grace resulted that these Christians were very generous in helping with this offering to bring relief to suffering Christians in Judea. Paul was very concerned about this, and he wrote about it in a number of different places. You read about it in Romans, you read about it in 1 Corinthians, and so on. And he wanted to bring relief to the suffering afflicted Christians in Judea from the churches of Asia Minor, Achaia, and Macedonia. Now, the reason for his desire to do this is, number one, certainly Christians are such as would want to give to help people in their time of need. That's the right thing to do. It's a good thing. Jesus taught that. And the other thing is that by bringing this gift from churches that were primarily Gentile to the Jewish brethren in Judea, Paul, I believe, had in mind making sure that there was a unified church and that the church didn't end up being two different churches, a Jewish church and a Gentile church. Because if you you remember in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul taught by the authority of God, because Paul was speaking for God, that God intended that the the two would become one new man, that the church would not be a Jewish church separate from a Gentile church, but there would be one church that was comprised of Jews and Gentiles. So by means of this offering, I believe that that also was in mind, that God would bring unity to the church. Now let's look at this verse 2, that in a great ordeal, the word ordeal in the original Greek is dokime, and that word means trial by testing, sometimes translated tested character, as it is in Romans 5 and verse 4. It's translated tested character. And this word means that something is put to the test and shown to be genuine. Something is put to the test, and the result of the test is shown to be genuine. Now, how does that happen? Now, what happened here in Macedonia that was called an ordeal or a testing? Well, as I mentioned last week, the churches that we know about in Macedonia that Paul, that we read about in Acts or Paul wrote letters to are Philippi 
Thessalonica, and Berea. And one of the things that was especially true in Thessalonica was that there was intense, heavy persecution that immediately uh, sprung forth and attacked the gospel. And the Thessalonians were known for being under continual, intense affliction and persecution, both from Jews and from Gentiles. So that comes out in the Thessalonian epistles. So the testing in their case, was intense persecution. Now, if you remember from when I'm teaching through Luke, you remember the parable of the soils? And one of the things that happened was one of the types of the soils was where the, the word seemingly bore fruit, but then in time of testing, they'd fall away. Okay? But the, the fruit that was good fruit, the soil that brought forth the good fruit, Flourished and continued to do so, no matter what happened, because it was in the good soil. So what testing does is demonstrates that someone has a genuine conversion and that they really have genuine faith. And once that is true, genuine faith will stand up under testing. Why? Because the people that have the real faith are just better people? No because of the work of grace that God does. And this morning's sermon, we're going to, I'm going to talk about this. I have some verses from Luke 12 that when I first read them, my thought was, oh, these are just random little teachings that Luke put in here on this travel narrative. But it turns out on deeper study that there's a reason. Luke always seems to have a good reason for what he's doing. And so in the midst of warning in Luke 12 about... Uh, denying Christ, if we deny him, he'll deny us, there's an encouragement that the Holy Spirit is going to work in our lives so that we won't deny him. And so it's the nature of saving grace and it's the nature of genuine faith to persevere under trial. And the reason it's like that is because of a work of God in, in true believers, not because we are the type of person by nature that are going to go out and be the the heroes and heroines and, you know, that we're more brave than everybody else, we're more noble-minded than everybody else, and we're we're innately better than everybody else. It's not true at all. God takes ordinary cowards and gives them grace, and they become bold. So that's what happened in their test. The testing in Berea... Philippi, Thessalonica, the churches of Macedonia, showed that they were the real thing, the tested character, the proof of genuine faith. And so the ordeal of affliction, their abundance. Now we have a word that's going to be repeated. The word abundance here is a word in the Greek that in verb form shows up again and it's translated overflowed. So there's a repetition here. And notice they have abundant joy and deep poverty. So it seems there's a kind of an irony here, because normally you wouldn't relate abundant joy to deep poverty. Now, why would they be so poor? Well, they were poor in monetary terms, but in terms of generosity, they had an abundance 
abundance of joy and an abundance of wealth. Now, the wealth was not the wealth of money. It was a wealth of liberality. So here is a poor, afflicted church is attacked on every side. And, and many times when persecution broke out, people suffered economic loss because they may have lost their jobs. They may have lost any associations in the city whereby they could do business. And uh, this is very common in, their, in the early church was that Christians became poor because of, of several reasons. The persecution is one reason. And another reason is that the faithful Christians often were forced to literally quit their businesses because the businesses, especially in Asia Minor, were associated with trade guilds, and the trade guilds were associated with idolatry and fornication and uh, idol worship and so on. And the business was so intertwined with these pagan practices that the Christians could no longer participate and losing their guild, they lost their associations whereby they could do business. So if you read the seven churches in Revelation, by the way, I got news for you. The series that I preached verse by verse through Revelation, actually back in 1999, finally is edited. It's, in, it's on the website, and you can study Revelation now. We've got another book of the Bible on our website. The whole book of Revelation. So you want to check that out. Now, what was I saying? Oh, those seven churches. Now, the, ch- the interesting thing is the churches that were compromised thought they were rich. Remember the Laodicean church? What does the Laodicean church have? Well, they had a real high self-image. They said to themselves, I'm rich, I have need of nothing. And Jesus says to that church, you don't realize how poor you really are. It's a reversal of the idea. They may have rich in money, but they were poor in their spiritual lives. But the churches that were commended in the book of Revelation were very small and very poor. And one good possible reason for that was that they were faithful, and therefore they lost their associations that they'd had, whereby they could do business in whatever it was they used to do. And that was very common in the early part of of church history, in the Roman Empire with all of the persecution. Now, here we have an ironic contrast, by the way, deep poverty and overflowed wealth, but the wealth is a wealth of liberality. They became, in Paul's mind, amazingly and surprisingly generous. And if, we, if you look at verse 4, it says, begging us for the grace of participation. In other words, Paul didn't go on a fundraising tour of Macedonia, you know, uh, showing pictures of, well, they didn't have uh, cameras, but I suppose you could have art. He didn't go around showing pictures of emaciated kids in Judea, you know, and start a Save the Children fund. He was simply, once they knew that Paul wanted to help the poor Christians in Judea, they sprung into action, even though they themselves are poor. And partly, I, I've seen this. This literally happens. I've seen it happen throughout my Christian life. I believe one of the things is that the people that were poor in Macedonia because of being under persecution, and the church was very much persecuted in Judea as well, they had empathy toward brethren who were going through the same thing they were. 
And a lot of times the people that will spring into action are ones who are going through the same ordeal as the person that they see that needs the help. And that's exactly what happened. So they sprung into action, actually begged for uh, the opportunity to be a part of Paul's ministry of bringing relief to the persecuted and afflicted church. So they overflowed, word linked to the word abundance, in wealth of liberality. So uh, there's irony here, but the, and the poor were actually rich, <laughs> like in Revelation where the rich are actually poor. In fact, let's look at, oh, I don't have a Robert. Who's, who's filling in here? Patrick? Um, let's go to the churches in Revelation and... Um, Let's have a couple people. Uh, Dick, could you look up Revelation 2, 8 and 9? And then Joel, could you look up Revelation 3, 17 and 18? We're going we're gonna to look right at those verses that I was mentioning before, okay? Revelation 2, 8, 8 and 9, okay? 2, 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write... The first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, says this. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Yeah, that's pretty strong words, isn't it? That's because they were persecuting the church. Not because of any kind of anti-Semitic sentiment on Paul's part. Now, what did it say? It says you're, you're rich. But actually, they aren't. They're poor. So it's doing the same play on words. Okay, they're they're in deep poverty, but they're very rich. They just don't. It would not be apparent to anybody looking at them. Okay, evidently the health and wealth gospel hadn't got to Smyrna. Okay, <laughs> then now look at uh, in contrast Revelation three seventeen and eighteen. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Wow. So there is the contrast. The, the church that was in affliction and poverty, Jesus called rich. The church that thought they were rich, Jesus said they were wretched. <laughs> and they didn't see it. So what do we know? God sees things differently than man does. All right? And regardless of our financial status, we can all be rich if we're partakers in grace. And what I mean by that, in the sense that Jesus said to the church at Smyrna, they were faithful to the gospel, and nothing was more important to them than their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and their faithfulness in serving him. That's Jesus' definition of rich. Okay, i got two more verses to look up. Dave, sorry, do you want to read a verse? And then Patrick, I'll give one to you too. Dave's right next to you there. 1 Thessalonians 1.6, and then Patrick, could you do 1 Thessalonians 2.14? The Thessalonians were in Macedonia. That was where Thessalonica was. 1 Thessalonians 1.6. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, 
having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, so there again, there's an interesting contrast. You wouldn't think joy and tribulation would go together. But it said they received the word in tribulation, but in the joy of the Holy Spirit. There's no greater joy than meeting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, no matter how miserable your life might be at the moment. <laughs> so that's where the joy comes from. And then Patrick, 1 Thessalonians 2.14. For you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen the same things those churches suffered from the Jews. Yeah, and that was the point that I made earlier, that that's part of the affinity with the Thessalonians and the people in Judea. They had gone, they went, gone through the same sort of suffering and the same sort of persecution and affliction. So they wanted to help someone who was in the same boat, as we say, that they were in. Now I have a quote from Garland who says this, In spite of persecution and poverty, they experienced an abundance of joy which resulted in a wealth of generosity. The Greek uses cognates, the abundance of their joy abounded. Abundance and abounded would be cognate words. In the New Testament, the Christian's experience of joy has no correlation to his or her outward circumstances. Paradoxically, Christians can experience joy in the midst of great persecution and personal suffering. Poverty overflowing into wealth also may seem paradoxical, but it fits the crazy quilt logic of the gospel. Joy plus severe affliction plus poverty equals wealth. Let me say that. Here's the, <laughs> the logic of the gospel. Joy plus severe affliction plus poverty equals wealth. Here, wealth relates to a wealth of generosity and joy multiplied. They were full of the joy of the Lord, and they were generous. Okay, I got one more quote, and then we'll open this verse up for discussion. One more quote, and that was from Barnett, and that is on page 393. Here's what he says. The present passage suggests that the Macedonian churches were poorer than the assembly in Corinth. This is understandable given the wealth of the Achaean. Now, Macedonia, what we know as Greece, the northern part of it back then was Macedonia, the southern part was Achaia. Corinth is in Achaia, all right? This is understandable given the wealth of the Achaean capital, which was proverbial. Yet the northern cities of Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea were the Macedonian churches, where the Macedonian churches were located, though exploited by their Roman masters, were by no means indigent. This raised the question of why would Paul speak of their deep poverty of these churches? The most likely explanation is found in the words, in great testing of their affliction. Which, which point to persecution of believers in the Macedonian churches. Local social ostracism, with its accompanying economic disadvantages to believers, perhaps best explains Paul's reference to the Macedonians' great testing of affliction. Also, I might point out that the Corinthians in their past, and this is something that Paul is correcting, were in of the practice of participating with the pagans in ways that they shouldn't. So since the Christians in Corinth were compromising with the pagans, they likely were not suffering the same disadvantages. They were keeping their associations in, in wrong ways because the pagan 
guilds and things had to do with idolatry and moral compromise. So it's a very, and, it's, and throughout history it's been often the case that when the gospel first penetrates a new culture or a new city, that the very first Christians end up with not only being persecuted, but ostracized and losing their opportunities within the society to continue making a living. Or maybe what they were doing was sinful. I mean, if you're the witch doctor and you get saved, you're out of business. Or you better be. <laughs> Otherwise, we've got a problem. Okay, let's open it up for discussion. They had a guy on the Dr. James Dobson show years ago who said, just as uh, uh, Paul said, take this, thorn of, take this uh, thorn of my flesh away from me. And God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. This guy on the Dr. James Dobson show years ago said that every Christian, every true believer has a thorn in the flesh that pushes him closer to the Lord. Huh. Well, the Lord allows our testing. In fact, that word, dokimazo, is found in James where it says that we should consider it joy when we come into testings. Uh, let me find that passage here I'm alluding to in James 1. And then it tells us why. Why, why would it be so counterintuitive? It says here, verse 2, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And it is a good thing, but it's not that we volunteer for it. We don't believe in self-flagellation and severe treatment of the body, according to Paul in Colossians 2 may look religious, but it has no value against fleshly indulgence. We don't ask for testing. We don't try to become miserable. Uh, the life has enough misery. just comes around on its own without volunteering for any. But in God's providential hands, as he cares for us and he allows things to come into our lives, he has our best interests in mind. And I know in my case... Uh, when I was converted in July of 1971, I was working at this feed plant with a few other guys. And I've, I mentioned this before. One of the persons that wasn't in our little group, but he worked across the street and we had to deal with him, was just basically a maniac. The guy had been in jail. He was running away from alimony payments in another state. He ended up after... I was done working there. I found out from the other workers that he ended up being, uh, ended up stealing from a company and going into jail and so on. But anyhow, this ne'er-do-well guy decided that he was outraged that I'd become a Christian. And he took in, a, he came against me viciously every time he got a chance. And he belittled me and he, he'd try to embarrass me. He'd do anything he could. And that was a good discipleship program for me <laughs> as a new Christian. <laughs> for one thing, basically guaranteed I wasn't going to backslide. I wouldn't, want to ha I wouldn't give him the pleasure of seeing that happen. And um, it just strengthened, it strengthened my faith. It strengthened my resolve to serve the Lord. So it's nothing like what we're reading about in the book of Acts, but... The hostility was there. The only thing to keep that guy do, from doing to me what was happening to the people in Acts 
was that we live in America and he couldn't get by with it. There's enough laws and rules to restrain that sort of evil or it would have been there. That, I think the guy was just demon-possessed and couldn't stand the idea that somebody became a Christian. Uh, Any, okay, now, other comments on verse 2. Yes. Okay. This thing about liberality, is that an attitude or is it a reality? Uh, attitude meaning how they look at things. But the, they don't have anything. And when they're giving liberally, there's nothing to give. They had, what little they had, they were willing to give. And some of the cross-references that people point to are the widow's might. Okay? Now, they were uh, just generous and willing to help and willing to give what little bit they had. And it's uh, amazing what grace does. I have an application that I started working on. Yes, bring the Sam here. I have an application that I mentioned last week, and I want to kind of keep bringing this up. Yes. Uh, that question that Dick just posed, um, the abundance of joy essentially is the same thing as saying as the blessings of the gospel. Therefore, the, one of the blessings of the gospel is, is their liberality. Yeah. Yeah. They, they were full of the joy of the Lord, and they were glad to give, even though they had very little to start with. And so that was... That was their abundance, was their, was their liberality. I pointed something out last week that I want to just kind of keep re-emphasizing. As you read these two chapters, chapter 8 and 9 of Second Corinthians, which are about giving, and you see that the key theological word is grace, I was pointing out last week that the way most Christian organizations approach fundraising is absolutely backwards from what the Bible is telling us here. And the number one motivator that that you've seen in church history to gain money has been guilt. That's what Luther saw when when he saw the sale of the indulgences. There were people... Did anybody see the movie, Luther? Remember remember, uh, Tetzel and the... The, the, he was putting on a show about what hell's going to be like, and then to get money out of people, you're going to go to hell. You're going to be in purgatory. All the flames and fire are going to get you. Your relatives are in there now. You got to give your money. So guilt, you pile the guilt on the people, and then try to let them buy their way back out with money. That is so wicked. In fact, it was so wicked that it prompted the Reformation. Because Luther didn't start out thinking he was going to overturn the entire Catholic Church. He started out thinking he's going to be able to stop this wicked practice of indulgence. And this is so wicked, he thought anybody can see this is wrong. And his 95 theses and so on. And when the church says, no, we're going to do what we want to do, then that started the wheels roll and say, okay, how can we have a system like this? that claims to write the right to perpetrate wickedness and will not allow itself to be reformed in any way. There's something terribly wrong. And then pretty soon the whole system came into question, and that was the Reformation. Yes? I have a similar question regarding application today. A lot of people use this verse and other verses to encourage giving out of extreme generosity, and that's certainly very good, and we should. But... How far can, should that be taken in application? Should people 
neglect paying off debt so that they can give? Uh, should they neglect debt a little bit? Or, uh, <laughs> okay. You know, uh, or should you pay off all your debt before you give anything? Or, you know, what? Well, I think the line there I, we wouldn't say that because most people, as part of living, have a home mortgage. You know, and that's just how people, you know, your home's an asset. You don't mind paying on it. So if we were going to say, no, we can't give anything until we have, we're have we debt-free, we might be 75 years old before we ever gave. <laughs> Can anybody say amen? <laughs> okay. But on the other hand, it's absolutely wrong to incur needless debt and then make your creditors pay the church. And I've seen that happen. That's even come up in trials before, where somebody is... Uh, maybe they had a famous trial about that? Right here in Minnesota. Yeah, there's a bunch of money that had gone to the church, and then the guy goes into bankruptcy, and the, the people who lost their money by loaning it to him wanted it back, and the church had it. And so there was a big lawsuit. I can remember the outcome of that. But I would say, no, don't go and borrow money to buy a new boat that you can't afford and then give money to the church and don't make your payments. No, that, that would be wrong. The, the, the giving should be voluntary, and uh, Visa did not decide to volunteer their money to the church. Okay, now, guilt, guilt. Yeah, it's a, it seems like a real nice motivator. Let's just pile the guilt on people, and then let them try to buy their way back out of it with money. That is so counterproductive and unbiblical and unchristian. The Bible says that generosity comes because people receive grace and nobody demanded money, nobody pleaded for money. Paul said they begged us. We didn't. Paul didn't beg them. They begged Paul. And why? God was graciously working and they wanted to help. And the church leaders should do no more than make needs known and then put things in, see what happens. It's in God's hands. And we've seen people be very generous. We took up an offering for a family that had medical needs and it was the offering at that point, that, that offering for the family with medical needs was bigger than any single offering we had ever had up to that point just for the church. That was the biggest offering we ever saw. And all we said was, well, we have a family with medical needs. It's up to you to give what you see fit. And just leave it at that. We, we didn't say, well, if you give more, then you're going to be a better Christian or something like that. Yeah. We often hear from different uh, teachers these days about the principle of tithing and wondering if okay. or, or what we can do with that. If uh, I've heard it taught that that is still something we need to be doing. Yes. Some people teach that tithing after the Old Testament law type of uh, teaching is legally binding on Christians. And furthermore, any Christian who does not give 10% of everything that he or she makes is in rebellion against God and is cursed. And the only way to get the curse off of your finances is to tithe it away. It says in Malachi 3 and verse 8, 
Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. You say, how we rob thee in tithes and offerings? You are cursed with a curse, for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring this tithe into the storehouse. So the, I heard when I was a new Christian, this is just standard teaching. The storehouse is the church, and you bring your money to the church and give them the 10%. Now, Paul had ample opportunity throughout Acts, right here in 2 Corinthians, when he has two whole chapters on giving and, and teaching about giving, to, to reiterate a tithe law for the new covenant. But he did not. And it's a different covenant that we're under. So I believe that if you put it together, I, I did a summary of this one time, I don't know how many years ago. I took a summary, did a summary of everything that we know about giving from first, Second Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. Maybe we'll do this when we get to the end of chapter 9. But what do we know about Christian giving? We know it's free. We freely give. It's, it's, a, it's, a work, it's, it's an evidence of a work of grace. It's about grace. It's not about guilt. It's, it's, it teach, the, the New Testament teaches generous giving. The New Testament teaches regular giving. But it doesn't tell us a percentage that we have to give under pains of law. Any more than circumcision is binding or Sabbath keeping is binding or any of these other things. And the interesting thing is, I can't remember when it was I first did a sermon on this. You remember, Dick? Yeah, one time we did a radio show, and then, but the first time I preached a sermon on it, probably around 2000. I don't know, whenever I said tithing wasn't binding on Christians, our offerings started going up, and they've gone up ever since. <laughs> People don't appreciate being dumped under the law and pounded with guilt and threatened with curses. When, when, you, when you find out that, that giving is free and it's based on generosity, that flows out of receiving grace from God, that's all you need. You don't need any more than that. And the, and the church leaders, we've always operated under this principle. Thank God he's given us grace to do so. And it's just grace. It's not because we're superior to anybody. But all these years, you've been an elder for a long time, Dick. We live with what comes in. All right, this is what the Lord gave us. Skip, right? We can't pay for the building, we'll sell it. We can't heat the building, we'll cut salaries till we can heat the building. Well, this is what comes in, this is what we live on. This is what the Lord provided for us. We don't go back and say, you didn't give enough. We just, okay, this is, I mean, that's what you have to do, right? Those of you here, that's everybody probably, but you have some sort of income, and you've got bills that you have to pay, and if the income is too little and the bills are too great, then you just have to spend less. Isn't that how it works? Well, it should. And, oh, I know. You just go get three more charge cards and maximum all of it. Well, the point is, we we're, the church should live the same way that the people have to live. We're not privileged to have uh, unending supply of money coming every time we want it. Okay. Yes, that's right. Uh, one of the things I've noticed, I think it's, it's hard for people to give joyfully if they feel obligated. In most churches, they're teaching tithing and, and offerings. But I think you look at the, what we've been studying here, and you're giving people the word, and they're, they're giving out of grace. They're giving joyfully when they're not you know, told they have to give a certain percentage. Uh, yeah. It, there, there's a certain counterintuitive thing going on here. 
So if you're a church leader and you study 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, why wouldn't you study these two chapters, the most concentrated material about giving anywhere in the New Testament? Start where the Bible tells you what, it, what you need to know, right? And that's right here. So you study that and you realize that Christians become generous because they've received grace, not because they've gotten under more guilt. Then if you're a church leader, what would you do? Give them the means of grace. <laughs> Feed the flock the pure word of God, and then don't worry about it. God is between people and God and the grace that he gives them. Now, if somebody asks me about this, and don't, take, don't get me wrong, being generous isn't the only or even the primary sign of grace. It's just one of them, all right? Because the, the real sign of a work of grace that's most prominent is we're conformed to the image of Christ. So I'm not just saying this is the only, this is not an exclusive thing, but it is a true one, okay, that they received grace and they became generous. Okay. Uh, I don't want to get you on a tangent but here, but you've been talking around it, but doesn't it depend on all this giving has something to do with the aspect of stewardship? Well, yeah, there's a, there's a stewardship idea in, I believe, 1 Corinthians 4. Doesn't it talk about stewardship? It's, a steward is to be faithful. They, that, there's, there's nothing wrong with that concept. The concept would be not just money, but everything we've been given is given under a stewardship, whether it's our talents, our time, uh, you know, whatever God gave us, our families. Everything he's given us, he's given as a stewardship. In other words, we're not our own. We're bought with a price. God just gave us to us... Um, Temporarily, but we're but we're responsible to God about how we practice our, the stewardship of what He's given us. What do you have that you didn't yeah, yeah. What do you have that you didn't receive? That's a good passage. Um, somebody was somebody gave us a really generous gift some years ago when we really didn't have hardly any money, and it was somebody that was a CAC reader, and I sent a thank you note. And I said thank you for your amazing generosity. He says, no, it's all the Lord's. We just get our fingers on it for a little bit. <laughs> okay, Patrick. <laughs> so if we shouldn't uh, guilt people into giving or we shouldn't require a tithe, what is the proper way to, en- to encourage others to give in the church? Okay, well, Christians give, uh, if you just take the things that we do know from Corinthians here, generous giving, he even talks about regular giving. Remember, uh, where is it? First Corinthians 16. Uh, they gather on the first day of the week, and when he was talking about an offering that he was taking up, I think it's First Corinthians 16 too. So you have generous giving, regular giving, gracious giving, joyful giving. <laughs> There's all kinds of things you can add uh, to uh, adjectives to giving that you can find here in, in Corinthians, and uh, there there are a lot of Christians who tithe because that's just what they want to do. You're free to give 10% if that's what you want to do, but don't claim that you're better than the ones that don't. Do you see what I mean? You're not getting rid of guilt, and you're not making yourself superior, but a lot of Christians, just that's what they want to do. I, I just love to tithe. I want to, do, I want to do that. Fine. We're free. You're absolutely free to do that. Yes. When my old church needed to raise extra funds, they would call in an outside firm, a marketing firm, 
And this firm would come into our church and they would take 10% of all of the earnings that would come through this new fund drive. And they would give it a special name like the vision of the big flower pot or something like that. <laughs> and then they would, you know, if they wanted to renovate the bathrooms or the downstairs or something, they'd bring in this outside firm to raise up all this money. Then they'd end up taking most of it. So there wasn't anything left to do the toilets. I see. For the vision for the new urinals. Well, there's another way to do it. If the boiler breaks and you don't have the money to paint the outside, you don't paint it. We still got a roof over our head. <laughs> you want to go ahead, Norval. Um, this encouragement to tithe uh, comes from the blessings, from the blessings that we receive from the Lord, and from the wealth that we receive from His Word. That's where the, where the encouragement comes from. Okay. People, yeah, people are, are blessed and they'll take care of the needs and they'll do so generously and graciously without any sort of manipulation. And, you know, the important, another thing about it, you know, people uh, that aren't Christians that watch how Christians do business, it offends them. When they see shenanigans on TV that are just uh, superficial or you can see it's very obvious that they're just after money. Somebody handed me this today. This is not very nice, but I don't read the comics, so uh, somebody handed this to me. It shows people in hell, and all the flames are around them, and there's t- these two guys are sitting in front of a TV set. Okay? And it says here, sure, they gave us a TV, but with nothing on but televangelists. <laughs> They're sitting in hell forced to watch televangelists. So. Oh, man, that's bad. <laughs> but I, I know back in the 80s, remember the PTL thing where they were raising gazillions of dollars? Uh, they'd bring this handicapped guy out there, and oh, we're building a house for this guy. Remember that? So-and-so's house, and it was just disabled guy in a wheelchair and they were exploiting him for money and at the time I was witnessing to my barber at the time back in the 80s and that seeing that on TV just she said no way I'm not going to listen to anything about Christianity if that's what Christianity is seeing that what they were doing on that television show it's an offense when people see the gospel used to raise money and to uh, make certain stars, like Hollywood movie stars, in how they live and how much money they have and how opulent things are, it offends people. And we should never give any offense. We're told to give no offense to Jew nor Greek nor the church of God. And nothing seems to offend more than schemes to, to gain money. But if we do things in a biblical way and... Just give ourselves to the Lord and give the means of grace. And when God does a work of grace, people give as they see fit. And some people give more or some less. It doesn't matter. We don't, we don't make any of that known. It's just, it should just be done in a way where people can give and do what they do. Yes, uh, Doug. I just think because of what you said that uh, you know, money is very important to people, 
that, that it ought to be preached more in the, uh, you know, in the sermon on Sunday morning. That more than, what, twice in 20 years? Okay. <laughs> oh, well. And well, part of the reason for how often I get to a topic is I teach verse by verse by verse through the Bible, so when I get to it, I get to it. And I got to it in Genesis because there was Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek, and so that brought the topic up. And by the way, that was voluntary. Abraham wasn't under any obligation to do that. People voluntarily give 10% because that's what they like to do. Yeah, it was a one-time event. Yeah, it spoils the war. Yes. I, well, I think that's great because you're teaching people the means of grace. I can testify that in the last couple of years of attending TCF that I've come to understand, uh, you know, stewardship and, and that really fully, you know, maybe not fully, but uh, a much greater understanding of my relationship to God and how much I really owe him and that everything he has given me is his and I need to, to make use of that. And okay. I think the more you teach the means of grace, the more the people in the congregation are going to, you know, give freely. That's true. Okay, now let's start with verse 3 here then. Um, For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. So here, by the way, here's one of the few verses in the Bible where free will is found. The the own accord here is uh, a Greek word that's composed of autos, oneself, and hero. (laughs) <laughs> I can't say it. It's where we get our word heresy, which means to choose. Hereomai. Hereomai. And to choose, and so literally when it's put together, the word means to choose for oneself. So it would be reasonable to translate that of their own free will, or of their own choice, or freely, as they are willing. So they gave freely, or of their own accord. So Paul did not constrain them, make them obligated, or suggest that they would be lesser Christians if they did not participate in such a generous way. The word ability here that's used twice is dunamis, power, according to their power and beyond their power. So they evidently, um, quite sacrificially, took action um, just from their own heart of what they wanted to do. Let me look across a quote about this. 394 Barnett. This grace of God given in the Macedonian churches is expressed in their sacrificial and voluntary participation in the collection. This voluntariness mirrors, one, the grace of Christ toward humankind in his unconditioned impoverishment of himself in the Incarnation, verse 9, and two, the grace of God in this day of salvation which has come to them in Paul's ministry. Rather bluntly, Paul is citing the Macedonian voluntariness to admonish the Christians voluntarily to renew their involvement in the collection. Let the Corinthians note from this passage that the grace of God is shown voluntarily, works dynamically in those to whom it's shown, and who respond voluntarily in ministry, voluntarily in ministry to others, 
and is characterized by generous oversupply. They gave beyond. So Paul's letting that be known as a good example, hoping that the Christians in Corinth might decide to follow the example of the Christians in Macedonia who had evidenced such a mighty work of grace in their midst. So here we see some more things about giving. One of them here is this voluntary or of one's free will or of one's choice to do so. Okay, yes. I just wanted to make a comment. The church I came from, their way was to say if you tithe, which was 10%, and if your life didn't improve, they would give your money back. (laughs) Money back guarantee. I think I heard about something like that. I read the paper through every day because I want to know what's, what the issues are that people are thinking about and talking about what's going on. It's my way of doing that. I like to read. And I think I read about a church that had done that and then somebody wanted their money back and they wouldn't give it to them. Anybody hear that story or did I just dream it? They'd spend, they'd spend it all and they didn't have it to give back or something like that. Okay, so... It's too bad. Why has why this happened? I don't know. It's, it's rampant in America, and it's not a new thing. Some of these things were around when I was in Bible college. We had a guy come in, although i got to admit I had a good teacher. There was a guy that came into chapel, and, was, and this was before the health and wealth gospel was as prevalent as it eventually became, because this was the 70s. It was around. Kenneth Hagin was already doing his teaching and then, but this guy came into chapel and taught that if you gave your money away, you'd get wealthy. And he had this whole scheme of doctrine based on become wealthy by giving away your money to the church. Now, right after chapel, we went into this class, and who was teaching it? I think it was, it was either Reverend Snow or Reverend LeVang. One of my teachers was teaching a class after that. I don't know why I'm drawing a blank on who it was. But he was, he was just outraged. And he said, that guy just taught false doctrine. Don't believe one thing that he said. And he says, I have living proof. I know this guy was an older teacher and been around a long time in the church. And he says, I have seen people that gave most of their money to missionaries most of their lives, and they never did have anything. And if this guy was telling the truth, those widows that I know that gave most of their money to missionaries for years would all be wealthy now. And he says, and they are not, other than they're wealthy in their relationship with Christ. (laughs) And so this guy got up and rebuked that message right after we heard it. So I had a good teacher. And um, there's no scheme whereby you can get wealth. Now, only in America... Somebody else said that um, he was volunteering, helping some missionaries in an impoverished area of Mexico, and some of the health and wealth teachers came down there preaching their message, and they didn't get anywhere. It's like, these people look around, we're going to get wealthy? Where's that going to, when's that going to happen here? Okay, nobody has anything. Where's that going to come from? And they didn't even, they wouldn't even believe it. So there's things in America, and uh, we just need to avoid allowing the culture we live in a culture of greed, 
okay, and we li- live in a culture where we're taught that if we don't have a whole lot of everything, then that we failed God or failed somebody. And it's just uh, Lawrence here. Uh, we got to make sure that what's the sins of the culture don't come into the church. Is that right? I got precedent for that because Paul told the Cretan. It says Paul said this. One of their own says the Cretans are lazy gluttons. And so Paul said this testimony is true. Therefore, reprove them that they might be sound in the faith. In other words, in the church, okay, there's church in Crete. The people who become Christians are not to take whatever sinful in their culture into the church. Okay? So maybe they're not used to working because that's the way it is at Crete in the first century. But if, if you become a Christian, then you need to be industrious. Right? Okay. Uh, Lawrence. I read a book a few years ago by Randy Elkhorn, and I forget the name of the book, but it was something like that, The Treasure Principle or something about that. And his main thesis, I guess, is that as Christians, we should, we should be motivated, and it's okay to be motivated. And I was, I, I was thinking about this when you talked about those women who have been giving their, their, their money all these years and were poor in this life, but their rewards in heaven will be great, and they will be mm-hmm. rich in heaven. Mm-hmm. And that as and Randy talked about in his book, as Christians, we should be motivated by being rewarded in heaven. It's okay, even though... That seems to go against everything we're taught, that we shouldn't be motivated by, by that. But yet it's to be motivated, to be rewarded in heaven is okay. What, what's okay. your comment on that? I guess you'd have to, I'd have to comment on that in agreement in, in the sense that the direct teaching of Jesus is to lay up treasures in heaven. Okay. So I think that the reason that you see that motivation about what's going to happen in heaven is that it won't do any good unless you have genuine faith. Because if you don't really have faith, you just think, oh, there's pie in the sky, and it's just not that real. You know, have, I don't know, streets of gold, who needs that? You know, I'm, I'm happy with the asphalt. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so the, so the fact is that the only reason we would be motivated by something eternal is because we have faith in the gospel, that it's really true, and therefore we'd have reason to lay up treasures in heaven and uh, that, you know, we don't want to manipulate that, but it's still true that the Bible does say lay up treasures in heaven. I mean, in reality, those, those widows really are rich. They, they really are. They are rich beyond, beyond measure. They, yeah. In reality, they really are. They just haven't gotten their reward yet. Yeah. yeah but if you want to listen to, you can see what's going on in the church by listening to the music that's popular at any given era. And right now, well, I've been, I've been doing this for a long time. Because I've been listening to gospel quartet music in my truck from the 60s. Okay? And this gospel quartet music is all about laying up treasures in heaven. And it's, i got a mansion over here. Down here, I'm in a shack, but there's a mansion in glory. You know? And that was before the health and wealth gospel. Then, then these, literally, these, when the health and wealth gospel came around in the 80s, they mocked the Christian music. They, 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 they ridiculed songs like that. And saying that you're just that you're just a pitiful failure if you're singing some song like that, you know, treasure in heaven. You, you know, the sign of true faith is you got riches now. And our music changed, and we started singing about how great we are. Uh, we don't do that here at Twin City Fellowship, but you saw. Have you seen that kind of music? 
or you're singing about yourself. When I was out at Saddleback with that, I think I mentioned that with that, uh, Chris, the music at the end was the loudest music I've ever heard in a church. I've heard it when I was a kid going to rock concerts, but I never heard it that loud in a church before. And they, the last song they were singing, we were singing about ourselves. I wouldn't sing. I wouldn't sing a word. I was sitting next to Chris, and he says, I, I just refuse to sing about myself. It's just a, not a good topic for a song. <laughs> Unless I'm singing about being a wretch <laughs> and God's grace. So, oh, we went a little late. Sorry about that. Uh, we got done three minutes early last time. One of the Sunday school teachers says, I didn't get to my main point for the kids. And Why'd you quit early? Okay, we'll see you upstairs at 1030. God bless.